of the Mariners Insider Podcast. Before we get to this week's interviews, I just wanted to relay some of the news of the week and kind of give you my interpretation of it. The biggest news that wasn't exactly really news came on Monday. And to be honest, it was something that I completely expected after the previous week was relatively quiet as far as any word on the ongoing conversations that baseball was having regarding the start of the season. I suspect some of the reasons we had radio silence was because of the NFL draft last week and baseball probably happy to let that kind of take center stage. But this week, almost on cue, we had a post first thing Monday morning from Jeff Passan that the overwhelming feeling around baseball was that there indeed is going to be a season. No hows, no wheres, no whens. But in his word, quote, just about everyone involved in the process believes there will be baseball in 2020. Okay, that's been the theme this week of everything that we have heard from a slew of national writers, all coming up with similar stories. And again, obviously no official word anywhere. Uh, It's all just going off of a feeling. And, you know, they're not making this stuff up. They are talking to many, many people, a lot of people high in the game and, uh, you know, smoke fire type thing right there. I can tell you that as we enter this week, um, what I'm hearing from the players, and granted it's a very small sample, with who I'm talking to, but they all talk to each other. And the group that I've talked to is pretty well represented in terms of, say, service time or salary. Uh, The talk with them is very much shifted. There was a lot of I don't knows that sounds extreme when we heard about the bubble plan in Arizona, and that was, what, three weeks ago, maybe even four weeks ago. Well, the language that I'm hearing right now is very different. What I'm hearing right now is we want to play or even, I need to play. Uh, One player even went so far as to say, yeah, we need to go back and play. And he said, it's not so much for me, but it's for all of the younger guys out there that haven't established themselves, that don't have the big paychecks right now. So when I hear those kinds of things, I think they're all talking to each other. Oh, I know they're all talking to each other. Everybody that I talk to uh, says that they've all been in, in constant communication by text, by Teams, by Zoom, whatever it is that they're doing. And and they, as much as we want news, want it even more. So they're seeking that out. The longer it goes, it seems the more that they want to play and are willing to play. So this is something uh, to keep an eye on. You'll hear in this uh, podcast even one player saying, hey, I'm a baseball player. It is my job to play. So that has been a major shift. Again, it's not news. It's nothing official. But it seems that as far as the inconvenience factor of what they might be required to do to play, it doesn't sound like that is going to be as much of a factor in their determination if they will. I think the biggest determination for the players right now is going to be compensation. Uh, That is something that they will have to get over as far as hurdles go. One major hurdle was overcome today. Today is Friday, just a couple of hours ago. There was news that MLB and the Umpires Association has come to agreement on how they would handle the 2020 season, and the umpires will be paid. We don't have the details of that yet. I'm curious to see if in that negotiation um, there was anything concrete on the robo-lumps, the automated strike zone. So that will be something I'll be keeping an eye open for over the next 24 hours or maybe even making a phone call or two if I need to on this one. But uh, interesting development right there. Bottom line is, is baseball is pushing forward right now, looking at options and kind of along those lines. I'm not convinced that the Arizona option is the number one option anymore. Uh, I think that when Passon originally came out with that, that was the 
basically the only option they were saying that they saw was feasible. Now, some time has gone by. We've heard some different things. We've heard about the three-league and three-state scenario uh, where you could see baseball being played in California, or I'm sorry, Arizona, Texas, and Florida. Uh, that seems to be picking up some steam right now. And then on Thursday, we heard something a little bit different, and we heard it right there on 710 ESPN Seattle. Jerry Depoto in his weekly show with Danny and Gallant uh, again expressed the optimism and, and the feeling that they were going to play. And I'll point out this was very different from what we were hearing from him a month ago when this all started to come down. Uh, I'll say he sounded downright um, depressed about it. He sounded very down about the situation, which uh, might be appropriate. Obviously, this is a horrible situation and, and very sobering when you think of the big picture, but uh, which we should be beyond baseball. But when he spoke with the guys on Thursday, uh, he was very optimistic that there was going to be a season. That was the word, you know, again, nothing official, but those were the conversations that he was hearing, the direction those conversations were going. And he also said that there was a possibility that we could see baseball in home ballparks this year. He didn't elaborate, and I've heard the possibility before, and every time I've heard that possibility, it was they will start in one place but could finish the season in home ballparks. So that was something newish right there. Uh, we're kind of getting mixed messages on that. If you're following what's been going on on the national level with this or as far as um, you know, consulting with uh, different officials from the government, uh, Dr. Fauci has talked about, well, yeah, I think it would be feasible if they were able to sequester everybody and, and keep track of everybody and, and have massive testing. Um, there have been a couple of different political figures who have gotten involved in the last few days and said that, you know, the country needs baseball. It would be great to see baseball played. So uh, a lot of different things to watch on this front. But, um, you know, you're, you're seeing it kind of branch out away from that one Arizona plan right now, something to keep an eye on. Something else I just I want to remind everybody, you know, this is going to be a topic that is uh, going to be front of mind until we have baseball or we definitively do not have baseball. Uh, and I cannot stress this enough, is that any time I, I talk or write about this, uh, being able to do this, being able to play baseball and ensure public health and safety as well as not take away from resources from the public, wherever these games are played, if they are played, that is first and foremost. Uh, to me, that is a given to the players that I've talked to, the people in the game that I've talked to. That is a given. So if for some reason that is not brought up, if I don't mention that, please keep in mind that uh, there, that's, that's a non-negotiable in my mind, that you've got to have a clear path on both of those fronts before you can proceed. All right, so that is uh, where we are as of Friday afternoon, and uh, I guess we can get to the podcast and my conversations this week. We've got three of them, a little bit of old, a little bit of new, and I think what could be an interesting blend of the two. That talk comes from Jamie Moyer, and this is just a good old-fashioned baseball conversation with somebody that goes back a long way for me, all the way back to my first days in the game. He was one of my first interviews, and that's all the way back in the kingdom. 
I also got to talk with him quite a bit once I got into the role that I'm in now and I started traveling with the team. My first year traveling with the team, we were on a different plane back then. It was Paul Allen's 757. It was just absolutely fantastic and couldn't believe I was sitting on a, a private plane with a baseball team at the time. And if that wasn't enough, Jamie Moyer sat directly behind me. That no longer goes on. They separate the players and the media, but I had Jamie behind me for an entire season. So we had little chats here and there, and I had the ability to ask him why's or how or how does this work uh, quite a bit, and uh, that was an absolute treat. So it's always great to catch up with Jamie Moyer. And I was kind of intrigued about something. We, we talked about a number of um, topics, but Mike Salk this week on the flagship station Ask the guest when he was sitting in for Danny O'Neill with where baseball has been taken with the analytics and what the analytics have turned the current game into. Where's the counterbalance or what is the counterbalance for that? You know, baseball is always evolving. There's always going to be a response to a trend that is never going to stop. So, you know, how do you counter the numbers? Jamie, I didn't quite ask him that question, but kind of the realization in the conversation came from, well, you need a little bit more of what Jamie did. I, I think that uh, with baseball always evolving and the give and take, what's the reaction to the reliance on the numbers? And what Jamie did, make no mistake, he had his own data, his own analytics. He was at the forefront of the mental side of the game. He was doing a lot of the things that are being done right now without the technology, um, just in a very different way. And and he was a guy that anything that was available to him, he was going to grab. So while he talks right now, and he might sound a little bit like an old timer to some people, believe me, he would have been all over everything that's available right now. There was nobody at the time who was more into and I think did more investigation on his own into ways to better himself. So, uh, you know, it's not a matter of, well, this is how it should be done. But what I think is kind of missing as you are relying on the data more and more and more and uh, to some extent relying on velocity more and more, although I think that this is turning in a different direction and we address that in the conversation, is you are missing the feel for pitching. You are missing pitching. You are missing exactly the things that Jamie talks about in this conversation. So to me, uh, I found that very, very interesting, and it's something that I thought for a while that maybe that will kind of be the next turn that the game takes. We'll have to wait and see, but uh, what better person to talk to than Jamie Moyer on that subject and a whole bunch more. I also catch up in this podcast with Kirby Arnold. He was a longtime beat writer for the Everett Herald. He's now semi-retired. And I go to him for stories because, well, he actually wrote a book of them about the Mariners and uh, covers the entire history of the Mariners. It's a fun read. He will get into that a little bit. He also lives part-time in Arizona. He's down there right now. He can give us a picture of what Arizona is looking like in its response to the coronavirus outbreak. And then he also talks a little bit about his second passion, auto racing. And uh, he has been able to pick up a great part-time job involving auto racing. I'm very, very uh, jealous of some of the things that he's been able to do with that. He will get into that as well. Up first, however, a get to know with Tim Lopes. Lopes had the look of a guy that was going to make the roster out of spring training. And uh, I came away from this conversation believing that perhaps he had more of an edge 
than I initially thought. Uh, when we were down in Arizona, Scott Service really raved about what he could do with the bat. He has made some serious adjustments in the last year. Uh, it sounds like he's got another coach in his corner as well, and with good reason, too. One other little nugget from that interview, Lopes has quite a history with the Seeger family. This is something I did not know. Lots of good stuff from Tim Lopes. Well, Tim, it's great to catch up with you. Tell us a little bit about where you're at right now and who you're with and what this last month has been like for you. So um, I'm in Chino Hills in California. I'm staying with uh, my, my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, my wife's parents. Um, and yeah, we've just been spending time here and just trying to stay ready for whenever this season's going to start. Um, but I've also been spending time a little bit with my family as well, my side. They live about uh, like 15 minutes down the street. So just kind of going back and forth. Um, yeah, just seeing immediate family for the most part. Fantastic. Um, what, I mean, when all of this came to an end, what was the first thing that came to mind as far as your baseball went? How did you go about a, a plan and, and what you would do in this time? So I, I spoke with a few older guys um, like, you know, Kyle Seeger and Tom Murphy. I just kind of wanted to know what their plan of attack was going to be. And I and I was just going to kind of follow suit. Um, but, you know, it's tough because nobody's really experienced this ever before. And um, as baseball players, we're so used to having a routine uh, going into spring training. And, you know, this just kind of threw everybody for a loop. So but it's just the way I've been kind of going about it and kind of how they advised me was just to just constantly stay ready. Um stay ready for whenever you may get a call to go back. So that's kind of just been my game plan is just trying to stay focused on uh, staying ready as, as much as possible. It's interesting. You mentioned two guys there, Kyle Seeger and Tom Murphy, obviously, you know, Kyle's a veteran Tom. Well, not at the big league level. He's, 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 it's hard to look at him and say that he's not a veteran. What do you get from each of those? What do those two bring to this team? So, um, Kyle, I, I had a, I was really blessed to have him, um, you know, through my minor league career. Um, I played with both of his brothers, so I'm I'm close with all of them. And uh, Kyle is the guy I met last, but um, he's been a huge influence on my career. He was uh, he was my locker mate in Seattle, and I was just picking his brain as much as possible. And he's just gone about everything uh, in his career the correct way. He's one of the hardest working guys I've ever met, and. He really just has uh, the typical veteran presence um, in the locker room, and he's always willing to work with the young guys, which, you know, we can really appreciate, um, especially guys who don't have as much experience as him. So he's a guy I definitely look to uh, since I've gotten called up and even before that. Um, and with Murph, he's I've actually really looked at him a lot for nutrition advice. That guy, uh, he's as disciplined as they come as far as how, you, how to take care of your body and how to get your body prepared uh, to play the game of baseball on an everyday basis. So both of those guys have been pretty big influences um, over the past year or so. Does that mean you have a freezer full of venison there? <laughs> I got a I got a freezer full of vegetables and um, different grass-fed meats, and that's um, that's all because of Murph just trying to teach me, you know, what's good for you and kind of the stuff that uh, gets you prepared to play at a play at a high level every day. He has been so fun and so generous to watch with what he's doing. He's been putting a lot of his workouts on Instagram, and I think a lot of people are learning different things about that. Even if you don't have something, something as basic as a hill is something that you can get something out of. And I know that a lot of you guys kind of try and improvise with things. Is there anything that you've found that you normally wouldn't do? 
So I've actually been able to go to like a normal uh, facility. Uh, one of my friends owns a facility out here and he's just kind of opening it up for me and just letting me work out. So I've actually been had access to a gym, uh, which has been huge because I know a lot of people uh, don't have that. So that's been um, that's definitely been something that I, I hadn't had to do really is work out at home. So it's been nice. I think Tim Laker talked about you're one of the few guys who has been able to hit. What have you been able to do in that regard? How much have you been able to hit? So I've been hitting pretty much every day. Um, I've kind of been treating it like spring training, uh, just uh, hitting off the fastball machine. And my brother plays for the Miami Marlins, so he's been my workout partner. Um, so we've been just flipping to each other, hitting the tee, and just kind of going about it just like we'd be in Arizona and Florida, um, just preparing as if we had a game tomorrow. What does it mean to have a brother who uh, goes through a lot of the same things that you do baseball-wise? How, how useful has that been to both of you to always have that? Uh, it's been huge. I mean, my brother's my best friend, and we constantly push each other. Uh, we play the same position, uh, being utility guys. So we've uh, got to learn from each other and got to um, tell each other about experiences we've had within the game and uh, just helping each other out as much as possible because we, we all know how hard this game can be and uh, pushing each other mentally and leaning on each other when times just aren't aren't the best um, when you fail in this game because there's just so much failure. Um, so we've learned a lot from each other. Has he made his big league debut yet? He hasn't. He's been at the AAA level uh, the past three years. Um, so hopefully in the future he'll, he'll get a shot. Your debut and what came after that was just I don't think you'll see another one like it. I know the first time, you know, you didn't get an at-bat, but your first game where you had at-bats, obviously, you walked in your first at-bat. We don't see plate appearance. We don't see that very often. What was going through your mind when you were up at the plate? Oh, gosh, so many so many different things. Um, you know, as I was walking to the plate, um, you know, a lot of emotions uh, go through your body. Just, um, you know, you can't help but think about, you know, the journey that you've gone through to get to that point and, um, but it was weird. As soon as I stepped in the box, uh, I felt like I was at home. I, I felt like I had done it a million times and I felt like I was meant to be there. And uh, I just had this peace kind of come over my body and I, I was ready. Um, I was ready to be there. And I was just so blessed and excited and appreciative, you know, for the opportunity. What did you do that enabled you to have that peace? What did you do to get ready to, to a lot of guys don't remember their first at bat? <laughs> yeah, I. I think what helped a lot was, you know, when I got to the big leagues, uh, there were so many players that I had played with before and so many friendships that I've developed in Tacoma and spring training. And uh, I give a lot of credit to my teammates because my teammates really helped me uh, help me be comfortable at the big league level. And they embraced me with open arms. And it was just more than I could have ever asked for. And of course, two events later, you get hit. You don't come out of the game uh when did you know, okay, wait a second, I need to be out? So I was I was on defense and um I just felt like something wasn't right. I wasn't um I wasn't as sharp as you know I had been used to and I was I was struggling to, you know, really stay focused on the field and I, I just felt like I had to say something. You know, I, I felt like I was gonna uh, affect the game in a negative way. So I had to tell uh, Rob Nodine that, you know, something may be off here and you know, he pulled me out right away. They, they did a great job handling the entire situation. Um, the doctors that we have in Seattle were nothing but the best. So it was um, it wasn't a great experience, but it was a great experience to work with uh, with our medical staff. Yeah, it really always gets me. I mean, 
whatever situation they are facing, those trainers, they are the picture of calm. I don't know how they do it, but that has got to be so important to you guys in those situations. Yeah, they do a great job. Uh, they, we, we have to give them a lot of credit. You know, they keep us on the field and uh, they're the ones that give us the diagnosis to try to keep us safe. And uh, yeah, just very appreciative for, for our entire medical staff, top to bottom. Thankfully, you weren't out for very long. And then your first big league hit happens to be your one and only home run. How does that happen? Oh, I don't know. I, I, I blacked out in that moment. It was uh, it was everything I could have ever dreamed of, though. Um, I, I've watched the replay, you know, countless times and just trying to remember that moment as, as best as I can. But it was it was something I will never forget and I'll, I'll cherish in my heart forever. You came straight out of high school and into the Mariners organization. You were just 17 when you were drafted. You've seen everything at every level. You were away for a little bit, but you've seen everything at every level. It seems to me in that time, this game has changed so much, and that's a short time. How would you compare everything that you know now, and I'm not just talking about what you would learn in that time anyway, but as far as the technology goes, as far as the approach in the minor leagues goes, as far as the teaching goes, how has that changed? If, if you were 17 again and just start today, how different would that be? Uh, I think it would make a world of difference. Um, I, I can look back and, and say I wish, you know, I would have known what I know now at, at 17 years old when I was drafted. But, you know, I can't do that. But uh, there's so many things that I've learned uh, in this in this past year with, you know, Tim Laker, with Jared DeHart, um, with Carson Vitale, guys that have been huge influences on my career with the technology and um, just some of the new stuff that have been implemented in Major League Baseball. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of positives to it, and um, I think I've you know tried to use it for my benefit as much as possible. So I'm actually really thankful for some of the technology they've implemented in the game, and you know as long as you can use it for your advantage, um, I'm all for it. What's remarkable is when you look at your numbers, they are fairly consistent, although I know that you made a swing change late in your minor league career. Um, the impressive thing of it being kind of consistent when you get to the big leagues is it shouldn't be. And, and I know that last year with the ball in Tacoma, numbers were a little bit different, but you still came up and put up very solid numbers in the big leagues. What in the change that you made, or was it the change that you made that helped you be able to do that? So uh, Tim and I, and uh, JD as well, we we worked a lot in the off season and it was really just uh, trying to keep my bat in the zone as long as possible. Um, I think the way that I was attacking the baseball, um, it wasn't giving me a very good chance to, you know, to drive the ball. It was more to hit more ground balls and uh, trying to get more base hits. And I was really focusing on trying to drive the ball as much as possible this past year and kind of just focusing on that um, in my swing and with my lower half as well, just trying to put both of those things in unison and, you know, worked out. Those guys have uh, been huge influences for me and I've, I couldn't be more thankful for them. They've, uh, they've really done a number on me. So I just really appreciate them. Now, Tim was new last year. How did you get to work with him in the off season? So he, uh, he was in a camp in November. That was my first experience with the new staff with Seattle. Uh, we, we had a brief conversation. We didn't work too much together. Um, just in spring training a little bit here and there. Uh, but then when I got called up to Seattle, um, we had a lot of conversations about hitting, and I've loved everything he's had to say. So towards the end of the year, I said, hey, dude, you live an hour and a half away from me. Like, we're going to be hanging out a lot. And he was <laughs> all for it. So I'd make the, the trek down to Santa Clarita and, 
yeah, we work together about twice, you know, sometimes three times a week, uh, just as little checkpoints. And, you know, we, we got to work in those cages. I, I wore him out. So he's, um, he, he's probably sick of me by now, but yeah, we, we had a good time. <laughs> That's very smart. And it looks like it really paid off for you, which is great. Um, how do you stay in touch with him right now? Are you able to send him videos or anything like that? Yeah, I send him videos pretty much weekly. Um, you know, I'll have my brother film me, um, while I'm hitting and, you know, we'll just kind of go over some of the mechanical, the mechanical side of the swing and yeah, just have those type of conversations um, about hitting. When you got to spring training, what were you interested in seeing in the work that you had put in from the off season? I mean, I wanted to drive the baseball. I think that was um, from the strength side as well. I was uh, really working on my body, trying to stay as, as strong, but also flexible at the same time. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to see, you know, the ball come off my bat a little bit better. Um, and that's something that, you know, I really focused on and something I was looking for in spring training. And, um, you know, I think it, you know, it worked out uh, for the short time that we did play. Um, I saw some progress that I wanted to see. What was it like to be in competition in spring training? Um, it's, you know, it's tough, but it's fun at the same time. Um, there's so many great players that we have, so many great young players that we have with Seattle. And uh, I was just trying to go to the field, do my job every single day and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. Take Laker out. Who's been most instrumental to you in your Mariners career? Oh, that's a that's a good question. There's been so many. Um, I mean, I've had so many good teammates. Um, I've had so many, you know, great coaches as well. Um, but one guy that's really stuck with me that um, that's always worked with me on the baseball side, but also just on the spiritual side and um, just on the life side is Alvin Davis. He oh, is. Um, I mean, everybody says the same thing when you talk about AD. He's um, as professional as they come, and he's one of the nicest humans on the planet. And um, he's a guy that, you know, I could I could call sort of as a father figure. Uh, not even I, I could make a call to him, non baseball related, and he'll be there for me. So he's a guy that I've really looked to in my career. <laughs> I mean, I know him, but go ahead and tell others what is it that makes him just so accessible. Gosh, he, he's one of those people that when you're around him, he's very infectious. Um, just with his smile, his demeanor, uh, he walks into a room, you notice him. He's, uh, he's always smiling. He's always happy. And, you know, he brings all the people around him, uh, to be in that mood as well. He's just a guy you want in the clubhouse. You've got a guy you want in the dugout. Um, he just makes everybody better around him without even trying really. It's, it's very effortless. Yeah, always just love when you see him in a room. You know that there's going to be something that's a little bit lighter with, with him there. I want to take it back to the Seegers. That was interesting. You said that you have played with all of them. What is a common trait of the Seeger brothers? Oh, gosh, that's funny. The, it, it's funny because they're all so different. Um, I played with Corey when I was, I want to say, 14, 15 years old. And then I played with Justin in the minor leagues. Um in a high A in Bakersfield and then a little bit in double A in Jackson and then Seager in the big leagues and in spring training. But they're so, they're all such different people, but they all have little quirks about them that are the same. Like you can just tell that they're brothers. Um, but they're all very, they're, they're all very good baseball players. I think that's just, um, the common thing they all have is they really love the game of baseball and they've all three have worked very hard at it and, you know, got pretty good at it. How did you get to play with Corey at 14? So we played USA baseball together. Oh wow. That's where I met him. So we played a couple years together and just playing against each other um through the minor leagues. I played against him when 
uh, he was in Great Lakes. I was in Clinton, and then he was in Rancho, and I was in Bakersfield as well. So I've got to see the Seeger brothers a lot in my career. What got you into baseball? Uh, my dad was the first one to sign me up. Uh, I I didn't know anything about it. He's taught me everything I know. Um, and he played baseball when he was growing up, and it was just something that we found a common ground on, and you know, the rest is kind of history. I've been playing ever since, ever since I can remember. Did you play other sports too? I did a little bit. Um, I flirted with basketball and football a little bit, but it was it was pretty much baseball from the go. Fourteen USA baseball. I just what was your progression? I mean, when did you kind of get the picture that you're pretty good? Uh, so I actually. When I was growing up, I struggled in baseball a lot. Uh, I actually didn't know I had eye problems. I remember my teacher, she told my dad, like, hey, your son can't even see the whiteboard. <laughs> and I was I was really struggling at the plate. I was striking out all the time. My dad finally got me a pair of glasses, and I started to hit the ball. Um, so it was kind of funny how it worked. And then I started, you know, getting pretty good at it and kind of saw this as maybe something I can make a career out of and just – kept pushing. I've always loved the game, um, whether I was succeeding or failing. Um, it was just a game that I've always fell in love with. Before you got into pro ball, who was the best player you ever saw on the other side of the field? Uh, before I got to pro baseball? Yeah. Yep. Uh, Derek Jeter. He's a guy I've looked to my entire career. Uh, the way he's played the game, the way he's respected the game. Uh, he's been, he's been a guy I've always followed his career uh, my entire life. And I had a poster of him in my room when I was a kid. He's, uh, he's a guy I feel like everybody has respect for. You and Kyle have that in common. That was his guy, too, growing up. <laughs> you can, I don't know if you ever see it, but whenever Kyle, when he gets into the shift a little bit more, you can tell he thinks he's playing shortstop again. <laughs> he loves that. There's no question about it. <laughs> uh, were you, all, you were always a middle infielder? I was. Uh, I, I played shortstop for most of my life. Uh, but in high school, I moved over to second base a little bit because my brother was a shortstop. So we got to play up the middle together for three years, which was awesome. Uh, one of the best experiences ever. But, yeah, mostly in the middle infield. And, yeah, I then made the shift to outfield a little bit last year. So kind of doing it all, um, trying to do it all. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I didn't realize is I was looking up some past articles. You can steal some bases. Are we going to see that? I'm going to do my best. Uh, I'm trying to learn from Alex, you know, our, uh, the league leader. So I'm looking at him and D uh, for a little bit of advice on stealing bases. Does Alex give up his secrets? He does a little bit. Uh, he, he's always willing to help you on the bases. He's always willing to, you know, apply his knowledge to us. So some I'm thankful for. Is he your most unique teammate? Oh, he's the best. He's a guy that if you can have a conversation with him, it's always really entertaining. He's He's a guy you love having in the clubhouse. What's a good topic to get him going on? Oh, gosh, that's it's probably a wide range. But you can <laughs> you, you can talk about anything, and um, he'll make a joke out of it, or he'll make it humorous in some way. He's he's definitely got a sense of humor on him. Yeah, he is a lot of fun. How much are you keeping in touch with guys right now? I'm keeping in touch with a lot of them. Uh, over the last year, I've gotten close with a lot of guys uh, in Tacoma in the big leagues last year. A lot of the guys that were in Tacoma last year, you know, also found their way up to Seattle. So trying to stay um, as connected as possible. And some of these guys that I've met in Seattle, you know, I'll, I'll be friends with them for the rest of my life. So just uh, sometimes not even talking about baseball, just talking about life, seeing how their families are doing, just hoping everybody's staying safe and, you know, kind of this uncertain time. 
uncertain time uh, in all aspects, uncertain time with baseball. What are you preparing yourself for, for the possibility of what perhaps baseball could look like if there is indeed an opportunity to play? So, I mean, we've heard a lot of rumors uh, just, you know, about a shortened season, about, you know, a season going into, you know, October, November. Uh, no one's really sure what's going to happen, but I think the best thing you can really do is try to keep your body in shape, uh, you know, try to keep your your baseballism, so to speak, just at, at its sharpest. Um, that's all you can really do. Um, and whenever they give us the call, you know, hopefully it's soon, you know, I'll be ready. Are you ready for whatever conditions they might be under? Yeah, I am. I, I can wholeheartedly say I am, I'm, you know, preparing as best as I can. But at the end of the day, you know, I signed up to play baseball and, you know, I want to play baseball. That's um, my goal. And I love this game. And, you know, I, I just really want to get back out there and play just, you know, as I assume all the other guys do as well. What's something you're doing with your time right now that you wouldn't normally be doing? So I've... <laughs> I've actually been shopping for baby clothes because my wife's pregnant. So we fa we found that out, you know, a month, maybe two months ago now. Uh, so I've been shopping for baby clothes, trying to learn how to be a dad. Um, and that's about it. I think that's the newest thing I have in my life right now. You going to order a crib and put that together with all the instructions and everything? You know, I might struggle at it, but, you know, I'm going <laughs> to do my best. <laughs> You're not showing it now, but there was a guitar behind you. And I asked before we started if you played. You said, no, it's your wife's guitar. So I need to know what, what's a hidden talent that you have that we don't know about. Oh, man, hidden talent. It's funny. I've gotten that question a lot, and I honestly don't know. Um, I One thing that I do love to do is disc golf. I don't know if you ever heard of it, but it's like the Frisbee golf. Yeah. I love playing Frisbee golf, and it's something I've kind of gotten sort of good at. Um in high school, I played a lot, and it's just a lot of fun. I love doing it. Do you have any teammates that do that? I don't think so. I don't think I've ever really talked about it much. <laughs> <laughs> just bring the Frisbee to the field someday and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm sure it's a kick out uh, of it. Uh, are you uh, watching anything on Netflix-wise? Have you been cooking? Is there any kind of new skill that you've picked up? Uh, my wife does all the cooking. I'm I'm blessed to have her. She uh she always makes sure I have a full stomach, so I leave the cooking to her. She's she's pretty good at it. So uh, nothing in that area. But uh, I've been watching a lot of shows. I've worn out Netflix. Um, I started this new show called Outer Banks. Um, it's about a couple of, like teenagers. They're on like a treasure hunt. Super interesting. Uh, I have kind of enjoyed that and just been trying to stay busy and trying to stay entertained. Well, it looks like you are doing a good job and you've got something to prepare for with baby coming up. So what better way to use your time right now? Right. Tim, I hope we see you on a field soon. It's been so great to catch up with you. All right. Thanks for having me, Shannon. I appreciate it. Tim Lopes getting ready to be a first-time dad. We're happy for him. Also one of the few Mariners, from what I understand, who has had the opportunity to hit on a regular basis through the shutdown. We all know he was on fire with the bat in spring training in Arizona. Hopefully he'll get that chance to resume that tear sometime in the coming weeks. My next guest, I am comfortable saying, is an old favorite. It was great to catch up with Jamie Moyer and talk pitching. I want to let you know that the conversation starts on a different topic, however. If you're not interested, I invite you just to scroll ahead. In case you don't know, Jamie Moyer is the proud father of eight kids. Count them, eight. Four of them still at home right now. He lives in uh, San Diego. I was interested about hearing 
about uh, what the home education program situation is in the state of California, what that is looking like. I also figured some of you as parents, you might have interest in that as well and how he's handling the homeschooling situation. Uh, We also talk quite a bit about baseball. So with that, we will catch up with Jamie Moyer. Well, Jamie, it is good to see you. Tell us a little bit about where you're at right now and and how you and and those around you are adjusting to the new reality. Uh, Always good to see you, Shannon. Um, Love just being around your knowledge and your insight on the game of baseball. So, uh, yeah, and you're right. It is a little different right now for all of us. Um, but you know, being a dad at home with kids, you know, doing all their schoolwork at home is fun in San Diego. Uh, the weather's starting to turn for us a little bit to get a little bit nicer, a little bit warmer. Uh, we got that red tide thing going on right now down here. So at night, uh, the waves, the fish in the water, the dolphins, things like that, um, gives you something to do in the evening, even though you can't go plop yourself down on the beach. Um, so yeah, we're just trying to make the best of the situation. I think that's the only thing you can do and, um, trying to deal with everything and stay healthy and keep our distance and enjoy life. It gives us a lot more family time at home though. I know that. (laughs) (laughs) And it sounds like you've got about half of the group there right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I have, uh, four, uh, with me now, um, the other four are up and out and uh, doing their own thing. So, and I'm a grandpa too. I don't know if you knew that. I'm. Uh, I didn't a, know that. Congratulations. A, yeah, yeah. I'm, I almost. I have almost a two-year-old granddaughter. So, in July. Oh. So, yeah, exciting times. Oh, that is so much fun! Wow, that that's that makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> Now, a lot of the players that I've been talking to, they're dealing with like very little ones. And it's one thing to try and homeschool a four or five or six year old or keep a two year old entertained. And you're dealing with a more unique challenge that I'm sure a lot of our listeners and viewers are dealing with, too. You've got the teenagers and preteens. We haven't heard a lot about them from the baseball group. Yeah, it's uh, it, obviously it's different having kids home. But I I I'm really happy with how uh, my four older well now they're my younger but now they're older um (laughs) kids are uh have adapted to this homeschooling zoom program um keeping up with school um you know i think they they say we talked before we got on you know they're missing a little bit of that interaction that they normally get with their teachers and Mm -hmm. classmates you know actually on the premises at school but they still get this interaction you know through their zoom uh, in their classes. Uh, so at least they have that. Um, I'm really surprised how quickly uh, our school system uh, jumped to this and um, and really got it up and going. We were we only had a couple of days off of school we, you know, after they had closed the schools down and jumped right back into it. And obviously, there's a learning curve with all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we're keeping right up and we're going to, you know, finish out the school year and then, you know, then it'll be time to you know, I know as we speak, uh, the school systems down here are trying to figure out what next year its school is going to look like. I think a lot of parents are very curious about what that's going to look like and how it's going to happen. I've heard is you know several different things, but one I've heard uh, the high school may go in shifts. There may be shifts of kids that come in in the morning. There may be shifts of kids that come in the afternoon. I don't know if it will go into the evening or not, but they're trying to do things in 
potentially smaller groups instead of a whole school as one. So it, you know, there's a lot of a lot of things to to think about here. And obviously, first and foremost, is everybody's safety. About how many hours are they spending on schoolwork a day with their programs? Uh, let me see. We log on at eight thirty for our middle school kids, and they're probably done by three. But oh, they have, wow. but they have gaps in there. Like we just finished. I just finished making some breakfast, so mm-hmm. we had a half hour off. So we go an hour at a time, and then we get a break. And then we go another hour and then we have lunch and then we, you know, go another hour and then we have, again, another break. So there are big uh, breaks um, put into this. So it's not initially it was all, you know, from we started at eight and went till about two o'clock. And it was all, you know, the whole time except for a break for lunch. Mm-hmm. Now, they, you know, as we've gotten into this, they've created more breaks in the action. Wow, they seem really on top of it there. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, then summer break's going to come, and you'll have a whole new <laughs> set yeah. of challenges yeah. there. Yeah, well, and like I said, I've even heard uh, some things that, you know, where they may be off uh, November, December, January. Okay. Uh, and then their school year ends up going later into the year next year, and I, I don't know the reasons why, but my guess would be that, you know, weather changes and if there's going to be a pushback or kickback to this COVID-19 coming back, that might be the time of the year that it comes back. So they're maybe, you know, creating that social distancing. So I, you know, again, there's, there's some, you know, a lot of people have thoughts and ideas, but uh, you know, it's going to be up to the school systems and, and, you know, the people uh, making those decisions, but it, it'll be interesting. And, you know, it, 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 to me, ultimately it's, what are you know? Are these kids continuing to learn like they are in the they they would normally in the classroom? Mm-hmm. What effect is that having on 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 our children? Well, everybody is mostly in the same boat. Although it sounds like your school system is really proactive in in all of this, and it sounds like you, they've got a good plan and, and are coming up with creative ideas and are thinking, which is important. I know baseball's trying to do a lot of the same thing right now. Uh, have you heard of any of the plans? Have you got any thoughts of that? Uh, you know, I, you know, the biggest thing is obviously the players want to play. I get that and, and totally understand that. And, you know, I'd be the same way if I was in their shoes. Um, but the big part of this is the fans and the fan base and the people who, you know, participate at the ballpark and, and get that experience at the ballpark. And, uh, you know, the big question is, how do you provide that? How do you do that? And I don't know that there's any way that you can do it other than opening a ballpark. You know, I, you know, on, a, on, a, on an iPad or a computer or on a phone, I don't know that you can get that experience. Yeah, you can possibly watch a game. And I guess if that's the situation we're in, that's what looks like we might have to do. That whole experience at the ballpark, you know, I'm sure fans can relate to how many times they've sat beside somebody, had a great conversation. Somebody might have been a total stranger. And by mm-hmm. the end of three or four hours, you know, they they create a friendship or, you know, baseball creates that tie. Oh, and by the way, there's a baseball game going on that you get to watch, too. And maybe you see uh, a Felix Hernandez no-hitter or, you know, uh, a grand slam home run or a, a six-run inning or a shutout or, you know, whatever it may be. Or you just have that personal experience 
with a family member or as, as a family at the ballpark. So, or it might be out in the bar area, out in the outfield where you're interacting yeah. with all your friends. So, I mean, everybody goes to the ballpark for their own reasons and different reasons. Um, and that's, you know, what's not able to happen. And I don't, I honestly, I wouldn't want to be making these decisions on how and when this is going to happen. Let's take it back to when baseball was on the field and take it a little bit back further. We've been enjoying the 2001 series on TV and radio at night. And, you know, one of the things that's just been so heartwarming is people are tuning into these broadcasts, both on TV and then on radio, where you could hear Dave Niehaus on these calls. And that's the one thing I'm going to miss from this whole thing is, you know, it's really something to sit back and turn on the radio at seven o'clock and hear him, you know, call an entire game. It's amazing. Um, But it's funny because when they put the games on, the 95 games, of course, always come up first. Sometimes I think that 2001 team gets a little bit overlooked for for what they did. That was just absolutely amazing. And we just got into that in the last week. Uh, How do you quantify what that team was? What did that team mean to you? I mean, it was looking back on it. Uh, it was a very special team, and it was a huge accomplishment, you know, to win 116 games in a season. Um, you know, as we all know, unfortunately, we didn't get very deep into the playoffs, um, and I think that's probably why, um, you know, it doesn't get it to do because you know we didn't get very deep into the playoffs, um, or didn't get to a World Series, or didn't win a World Series. Uh, but looking back on that season, I know the players that lived it and played it uh, and coaches and organization and fans. Um, those people that had those experiences, it was a magical, magical year. Um, and, you know, it, whether we were uh, down by a lot of runs or if it was late in the game and we a run or two runs, it just seemed to happen regardless of what it was. Um, you know, we, everybody contributed um, one through, I think it was 24 at that time, not 25, right? There was a 24-man roster. Um, but everybody contributed to that team, and, and that's what I think made it so special because it didn't matter what position you played, um, how often you played, there was a responsibility to each other. And I think that's what ultimately came out of it. And I know, you know, that's the way it is every season. But when you're winning like we were winning or not losing like we were not losing, you know, I always, I, my spin on that season, and I've talked about this many times, if you think about it, we averaged seven losses per month. Pretty crazy. I mean, yeah, you can talk about the 116. And look, if you in today's game, if you win 90, 92, 95, 97 games, I mean, that's ultimately kind of what it's taking in today's game, mm-hmm. right? To get to a, to to extended season or playoff baseball. Um, you know, 116 was was pretty special. Um, and like you said, everybody contributed, and, and that's what, you know, and, and it was still exciting. I mean, guys would come to the ballpark and kind of look at each other and go, what's going to happen today? You know, but in baseball, too, I think we realize, and if you look at a regular season, every team goes through some sort of a slump, 
of 10 days, two weeks, whatever it might be. And it's just like they can't get out of their own way, mm-hmm. right? And it's just ugly baseball. If you look at the history of baseball, that's what happens with every team. And we never went through that. And I'm not going to say we played ugly baseball in the playoffs, but we didn't play good enough baseball. And maybe that's where our downside was in the playoffs. But during the regular season, <laughs> it, it, it was crazy how we were able to win games and come back. And like you said, people contribute. We watched game five of the division series last night in 2001. And I just started chuckling because I'd forgotten that one of my absolute favorite matchups in all of baseball was anytime you face Jim Tomey. That just was entertaining <laughs> to watch. What was your approach with him? <laughs> well, Jim, obviously very good hitter. Uh, and he had a lot of power. And he had power, you know, against, against a guy like me, he had power up the whole ballpark. So, you know, the whole goal with Jim was to, you know, and this was the way it was for most hitters, try to force contact early in the count and try to get him to swing at what I wanted him to swing at, not what he wanted to swing at. Uh, If the at bat, you know, went deeper, uh, then to me, it's like, I know I felt that Jim had a hole in on his hands, but it's that cat and mouse game of, you know, down and away and in on his belt. Mm-hmm. And I think that moving the ball back and forth or having to make him reach for the ball instead mm-hmm. of him, you know, having him getting anxious and reach for the ball instead of letting the, him letting the ball come to him. And, you know, we see him talk on TV today, you know, at MLB Network, you know, well, I'll let the ball get deep and I'll just hit it the other way. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it, it it's trying to create... Uh, or force a hitter to do things that they are not comfortable with doing. And so to me, first of all, getting ahead in the count, if he doesn't put the ball in play early in the count, if I'm ahead, now I'm more in the driver's seat. And now I can pick and choose to double up fastballs inside, or if I throw a ball in and he pulls it foul, and I feel like he's going to chase the ball in further Then I'm going to, you know, investigate how far in can I go or how far in can I go? And he'll still swing. Mm-hmm. But by speeding his bat up, now I can now pitch him down and away. Mm-hmm. And it's all about executing my pitches. And, you know, to me, ultimately, it's about my execution. If I execute my pitches and, and I'm able to change speeds, I feel like um, I have the ability to have a little more success you know, pitching that way. Whereas if I'm behind in the count, I usually have to, would have to use a bigger part of the plate. And that usually didn't fare well for me with my style of pitching. In your preparation for a game, we know you, you kept, you had your book and yep. you knew your hitters, you knew you had an idea of what you wanted to do with them when you went into a game. Once the game started, how much of that did you stick with and how much did you trust with what you knew, with what they were doing, what you were seeing with their swings, but perhaps Danny was seeing as well? Right. You know, I, I relied a lot on Danny. Danny was very good at that. Danny knew me very well. Um, I also truly had to understand what kind of stuff I had that day. Mm. But on top of it was how are the hitters reacting to what I had? To me, that was 
basically the dictator to how I was going to pitch. You know, if I had good stuff and they were on everything, it doesn't matter how good my stuff was mm-hmm. because I had to find a different way. Again, it's, you know, trying to get that early contact in an at-bat, especially in the first one or the first or second at-bat of a game. Because, again, those are situations where, you know, if you, if you as a starting pitcher, if you get the game and you haven't shown them a lot of pitches in the first and second at-bat, you still have, I feel like you still have an advantage. But if, if, they're, if they're pulling five, six, seven, eight pitch at-bats against you in the first and second at-bat, but the third at-bat, they're going to walk up and say, you know what, I've seen everything he's got. I've watched this game. I know he's not going to, you know, say throw his curveball or he's not going to pitch me in. So now they can start to delete pitches or sides of the plate, which now makes them a better hitter, in my opinion. Mm. So... You know, again, there's, there's, I think to me, there's a lot to be said with trying to force contact early in account. How much do you see that today? Eh, I don't know that I see a whole lot of any of that today. <laughs> it, 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 you know, the game is a little different. The game is pitched. You know, there's so much power in the game. The game is pitched up. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's more about beating guys up or trying to get pop-ups. Um, you know, yeah, there's, there are some pitchers in the game that are trying to get ground balls and double plays and things like that, but now it's all about spin rate and effective velocity and what's something about the ball speed off the bat. Um, you know, and look, the strikeout anymore is really not a relevant thing from the offensive perspective, you know, you Mm -hmm. go back 20 years in the game, 30 years in the game. If you struck out 125 to 150, 170 times in a season, you were in the big leagues. You were back in the minor leagues because hitting was looked at a lot differently. Today, you know, if you strike out a lot, but you're driving the ball out of the ballpark, it, you know, that's just what the game is is asking for today. So, is it right? Is it wrong? My opinion really doesn't matter. It's the difference of where the game was and is. And, you know, as I see today, you know, it's power more, more, you know, there's more power arms in a, in a starting rotation. But when you look at a bullpen, there's a boatload there. I mean, they're running guys in there, you know, in the sixth inning that are throwing 95, you know, and then the guys that are coming in the eighth and ninth inning are, you know, 95 and above. So, you know, you didn't see that back in the era that I played in. Mm-hmm. So, and that's where the game is different. And again, like I said, it's, it's not right or wrong. It's just the way the game is. And if you go back 50 years ago and talk to somebody who played 50 years ago and they talk about the era that I played in, right? you know, they're going to say, well, geez, when we played, you know, this is, this is how the game was. So this is, to me, this is how the game is evolving. And it will continue to evolve. So do you have thoughts on on how you counter the launch revolution and and what the pitcher's direction might be, what their move might be? My baseball intelligence is limited. (laughs) And I can only base it off of what I witnessed, what I experienced. And, you know, I just think for the longevity of a pitcher, you know, if you're pitching at max effort, 
you're just, you're, you know, there's going to be freaks out there that have longer careers, but if you're a max effort pitcher, your career is not going to be as long as if you're not pitching at max effort and trying to use the whole zone and utilize uh, the, the bottom of the zone, creating pitches that look like strikes out of your hand mm-hmm. that maybe, you know, early in the count, you might be on the plate or close to the edges of the plate. But if you can get ahead in the count, creating pitches that look like strikes, that when they get to the plate, they're borderline strikes or non-strikes and you get a hitter to react to that, to me is you have a chance to utilize your defense. There's a reason why there's guys out there behind you with a glove on, right? They're supposed to try to catch the ball and make plays for you. You're trying to utilize the defense. Where to, in today's game, yeah, that one, and, and you know, the other thing in today's game, the shifts. You know, they've got so much information on hitters and their tendencies. Um, you know, I see that maybe changing down the road uh, with hitters saying, you know what, I'm tired of hitting into the shift. And I know that it, as I was leaving the game, guys were starting to get shifted on, not a, on a regular basis as they do now. Mm-hmm. And it, it was interesting to listen to comments, you know, with guys coming back to the dugout after they hit a ball that would normally be a hit but they hit into the shift. You know, they were very frustrated by that. So I got to believe at some point, somebody's going to come up with some thoughts and ideas to change, you know, with hitters and how they swing or how they taken at bat when there is such a large shift on. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm, look, I'm a believer that movement on a ball, change of speeds, uh, speeding a bat up, slowing a bat down, changing an eye level, um, you know, when do you see, when was the last time you've seen an uncomfortable at bat from a hitter? You don't see that anymore. No. And look, and I heard it even when I played. Um, you know, you guys don't move people's feet enough. You know, and again, it, 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 it's not to hit somebody, but it's, it's to utilize the whole area around the home plate area. Yeah, you want to utilize the, on the plate, but you want to utilize the space off the plate. And then how do you do that? But again, it's something that has to be talked about. It's something that has to be practiced. And it has to be something that's in your repertoire. Mm-hmm. That's great stuff. I mean, so much right now is based on the numbers and so much of that is important. I'm sure when you played, you know, you took access, you accessed everything you could for knowledge exactly. and, and what you so, you know, people are doing that too. But if you lose sight of the feel of pitching, if you lose sight right. of exactly what you're talking about, Right now, that's not in your back pocket anymore. That's one tool that you're taking away. And right. you know, perhaps that's the way fastball usage was down last year. And, and, you know, one of the reasons everybody's got velocity, well, hitters have learned how to, you know, right. they just crank up the velocity machine and, and, you know, they've adjusted to that as well. So, exactly. you know, we very well could see more of what you are talking about right now, which I believe is actually uh, called pitching. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which, well, you know, I mean, and it, you know, to me, it's, you know, to be able to, you know, look, the, if you're a high school or college player today, you have to throw hard. So, there, you know, I think there's even more players in today's game that are being overlooked because they don't do the above, way above average things at mm-hmm. the ages of 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. Yep. Well, golly, you're limiting players 
at these young ages, you don't even know what their capabilities or abilities are down the road because you've, you're only looking at certain things when you're scouting, mm-hmm. right? And then, you know, I am, I'm not on the management side of it, but, you know, then what does development look like? You know, and there's a whole boatload of time and money mm-hmm. put into development, but what does that look like today? Mm-hmm. You know, versus, you know, in the past. So I think there's there's a blending here, I think, of, of what you and I are talking about. Um, again, I'm not against it, but th- there's a blend to everything, I think. And I think it's gone so far one way. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's gone so far one way that uh, I think at some point it's going to come back and level up. <clears throat> Is there a stat or a number that's available or an analytic that's available now that when you saw it, you're like, wow, I wish I had that? The analytics, I don't even understand. And I don't, you know, I don't know that I even attempt to try to understand it because I think there's so much into it. And, you know, if I was in the baseball world, I would, you know, make that attempt to, to understand it. But being on the outside, I don't know that I have uh, the resources mm-hmm. uh, to understand it. I think I need to be around people that get it and understand it and be able to explain it and learn it that way. Um, you know, I, I've often said, even when I was an active player, it would be fun for one day to be able to throw hard. But part of that caveat would be, I want to be able to throw hard but be able to locate the ball too. I think that would be a one day fun thing. I, I, I will never uh, go back and say, man, I wish I could have been this kind of pitcher because I think looking back on things that, you know, the, the way I had to go about it or the way I, you know, I was forced to do it. I really enjoyed it. And it was a challenge, mm-hmm. um, you know, Early on, I was not good at it, but thought I was pretty good and then learned that, you know, I had to learn some other ways of going about doing what I was thinking I needed to do, but I had to find other ways. And then as I gained some experience and found some other ways and trained appropriately, what I thought was appropriate, um, you know, it all worked out. You know, it's so funny because when, every time you mentioned training, that's something that I remember with you is when you changed what you were doing physically. I remember you took up running and then you stopped running and you did different things that you needed to. And now when I talk to young ball players, and it used to be you'd hear about the big changes they made at 30. Now you're hearing 22, 23, 24. Got it. You know, I've got to change my diet completely. I've got to change my workout completely. I've got to do the mental thing. It's like they are so far ahead with things that I think it took a long people that you know, a long time for people to realize that these are things that could help. And, you know, I think that you in particular were on the forefront of the mental side. I don't remember very many people talking about reading books and, and figuring out that as, as well. Yeah. I think the mental side is regardless of how the game's played. I think it's a huge, huge part of the game and trying to understand and learning about yourself and how you're dealing with whether it's the training part, whether it's the success part, or whether it's the failure part, or whether it's the traveling part, 
or the eating part or the, you know, or the diet part. Um, you know, and when I say diet, I'm not talking about going on a diet. I'm talking about what your diet is. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that come into play here, but learning how, um, to utilize these things on, on the mental side, you know, I can, I can look back early in my career and go, wow, if I knew what I knew later in my career about the mental part of the game, you know, it doesn't mean I would have been pitching 250 innings a year and winning 20 games, but I do know that if I had that mental strength and that mental ability to go about things differently, outcomes could have been a little differently and my consistency could have been a little different of who I was as a pitcher and then how I acted, right? It's all about staying in character. We have, we all have a character or we're, you know, we, we have our character, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I've seen it with myself as a young player and I've seen it with a lot of players and it's the, it's a maturity thing too. You know, when you don't do well, a lot of times you pull yourself away from your team, right? Because you feel like you're not contributing. You feel like you're not doing the, you know, you're, you're not happy with yourself. So as I learned that, you know what, I'm still on a team. I still mean something to my teammates and I still have a place on this team. But if you're pulling yourself away and pulling yourself outside of the group, that's not going to help you. Mm-hmm. Right. And and I think a lot of players go through this again. Like I say, it's a maturity thing. You know, I don't fit. I don't know if I belong. I don't. I don't believe. You know, how many times have you heard that? You know, on on your side of things, or you've sensed that from mm-hmm. doing an interview with a player, right? Mm-hmm. So, as a player, learning that and understanding that um, is really, really, really important. You know, and I think. You know, it's one thing I learned in the 90s. I'm going to show you something real quick. I just happen to have my book oh. right here, right? <laughs> it's something that it doesn't go too far from where I am. Wow. So, um, you know, I've got my youngest son, McCabe, who's in high school. So I, you know, try to uh, spend some time with him. But I've actually spent, you know, uh, some time with some of his teammates, some pitchers. Uh, and talking about the mental thing, the mental side of the game and how important it is. And, uh, you know, he's got a, a teammate right now that's, you know, that's already gone to college and he's going to be a, a senior next year, but is already committed to college. So, you know, getting him, you know, you watch his demeanor on the field and you watch how he acts in certain situations or to the game situation and the speed of the game. Right. And you, you try to bring some of these things up to them and they go, oh, yeah. I never thought of it that way, or I've never looked at it that way. So, I mean, and that's kind of, again, I'm just kind of taking my personal experience and things that I've gained, and I'm trying to help somebody with, mm-hmm. like, let's take a step back. Let's kind of step outside of our bodies and evaluate what's going on. Here. And I think when you have that awareness and you're able to be honest with yourself, that's another thing, is being the honesty that you have with yourself. You know, oh, you know, you won six innings and six innings, and you gave up five runs. Mm, that's not the best of starts. You know, well, yeah, but you know, I kept the team in the game. Okay, great, you kept the team in the game, <laughs> right? And to me, that yeah, all right. So, 
Did I have a great start? You know, some people might say, yeah, that's not a bad start. That's not a good start in my book, right? For me, right? So it's, so do I have an awareness to that? Do I understand that? And then how do I make changes or how do I make subtle changes? But, you know, I think the other thing is when you're starting to make changes, do you have to make wholesale changes and become somebody that you're not? No, you have to make minimal changes and you have to try things. You have to kind of dip your toe in the water and go, hmm, that's not as comfortable for me. So let me go back to what I was doing and try to figure out another way. You stumbled upon one of my biggest pet peeves, and I shouldn't even say this. Nobody's going to want to hear it, but this is my big get off my lawn. Um, when you talked about the six innings and five runs, what you hear nowadays usually is, well, you know, my process was right. My process was correct. And while I understand process is so important, how do you balance in your mind process and results? Well, like I said, it, it's, it all comes back to being honest with yourself and it comes back to, is this what I want to represent? Is this who I think I am as a pitcher and six innings, five runs, five innings, you know, four runs. And I do that on a consistent basis. You know, and again, realized some stats that used to be prevalent you know, in the era that I played in are not as prevalent today. ERA doesn't mean as much. Strikeouts don't mean as much. But guess what? The thing that will never change in a 162-game season, mm-hmm. there are 1,600 and some odd innings that somebody has to pitch mm-hmm. or a group has to pitch. And to me as a starting pitcher, those five starting pitchers are now in today's game, those seven, eight, nine starting pitchers that pitch during the course of the year. To me, it should be those five should be taking on that responsibility to say, I'm going to pitch my 200 innings or 200 plus because I want to eat up as many innings as possible to keep my bullpen as healthy. So when my bullpen is called upon to pitch meaningful innings that can determine a game one way or the other, I want them to be healthy in their mind and healthy physically to be able to compete Mm -hmm. to get you know, to, to, to hopefully have the most success and the most consistency. Uh, you know, this game is a very difficult game, but at times it can be really simple because I think if you think about things in a simple fashion, and like you said, those innings, those 1600 and whatever innings it is, they have to be pitched. And, you know, even the, you go to the everyday player, you know, what does the everyday player look like today? You know, how many games is, you know, that everyday player playing, mm-hmm. you know, and again, I get it. You know, you look at Cal Ripken who played every day, you know, <laughs> you, you know, when I was a teammate of his, people would say, well, he'd be better if he took a day off, he'd be right. fresher, he'd be sharper, blah, 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 blah. You know, people had their, their rationale towards that. This guy was six, what, six, five, yeah. you know, 220, 230. He had a different, his body type was different and he was able to endure that. Mm-hmm. Not many are, but. You want to talk about somebody that was mentally strong? How mentally strong do you think that man was to, you know, to play right. you know, the amount of time that he played? And, you know, playing in Baltimore, it's hot and yeah. humid. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, and so, you know, I tip my hat to Cal for that. And, you know, but, you know, what does the everyday player look like? Mm-hmm. And, you know, but again, the mindset has changed in the game, mm-hmm. right? And, the shuffling of players back and forth to the minor leagues has become an easier thing to do as well. So, 
great. So be it. I mean, it, it, that's how the game is being played and, and players are being utilized. Good. Mm. Again, I, don't take me wrong here. I'm not bitter towards it at all. Right. You know, or saying, you know, when I played, it was a better era. No, not not one bit. Yeah. Just saying, you know, we're having conversation here and we're talking about the differences. When you watch baseball, do you sit back and say, this is how I would approach this guy? Or I, I wonder I, if I, 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 would he react I, to this? I still do that. I think that's the, the competitor in you. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I still think, you know, it's watching swings. Um, but again, not actually being on the field and not being able to compete anymore. Um, you know, that kind of takes a little bit of the fun out of it, but yeah, it, it's fun. Or, you know, if I'm watching, uh, with one of my sons, I might say, Hey, you know, what would you do here? What do you think here? What do you think that hitter's trying to do here? What's, you know, who's on base? What's the situation? What part of the game are we in? You know, and it's really interesting that, you, you know, it's fun conversation mm-hmm. because, there, I don't know that there's necessarily a right answer or a wrong answer, but it's a perspective. What do you like to watch, or is there anybody that you like to watch right now? Uh, you know, living down here in San Diego, you know, I mean, I'm not a big Padre fan. I, I don't know the Padres very well. I like watching the Dodgers. Uh, I watch a little bit of the Angels. Um, watch a little bit of the Mariners when I can. Um East Coast baseball sometimes is hard to watch late afternoon just because of my schedule with kids and things like that after school. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the hard, the thing that's getting a little harder for me and it's different is because of a lot of the guys that I played with are now out of the game. Mm-hmm. So I don't really, you know, when I first left the game, you know, there were a lot of people still playing that I could kind of flip around and you know, watch a Cliff Lee pitch or a Halliday pitch or a Cole, you know, Cole Hamels is still playing. So, you know, um, and, you know, the Mariner days, you know, that was a long time ago. I hate to say <laughs> it. And so none of those guys are still playing. So now I look forward to, you know, whether I come to Seattle or go to Philadelphia or, you know, go to a place where I used to play and there's some sort of a homecoming of players and, now it's that, you know, as when, when I played, it's, you know, you always kind of looked up to the, the old, when the old timers came back to the ballpark and you kind of watched them have their fun. I'm now one of those guys. So uh, <laughs> we have our fun that way. You guys had some fun at the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, you know, watching Edgar um, be inducted was uh, a, a lot of fun. Uh, it's a fun weekend. It's a great place to go. I recommend for anybody, whether you're going to a Hall of Fame ceremony or just going to Cooperstown, it is a wonderful, wonderful place to be in the summer. And it really, it kind of takes you back 40, 50 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a very simple town. It's a very simple love uh, lifestyle. Um, you know, and if you're there for a Hall of Fame induction, you're there with a lot of true, true, true baseball fans. Mm-hmm. That was fun too, and you know what the the cool thing about being there for Edgar's uh, induction, um, we actually did a kind of question and answer at Double Day Field. We all yeah. sat on the field, and you know that was a blast mm-hmm. having you know all those guys sit out on the field and it just be question and answer. You know how simple was that? But you know the kind of the razzin and the stories that were coming out. We had a lot of fun. I think the fans had a lot of fun oh, yeah. with that interaction. And then again, ultimately to be able to celebrate uh, Edgar on induction day, um, you know, well, well, well deserved 
um, accolade that, that Ed, Edgar received. Oh, it was it was a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Um, last question. I'm going to make you think a little bit. Okay. If you had to put together a dream team behind you. Who? Each position. Where? Who would it be? Maybe limit it to former teammates. You should have given me a, a heads up on this one. <laughs> I played with a lot of former teammates, so I'm probably going to leave people out. Um, well, I'm going to say at catcher, it would be uh, Danny Wilson and Carlos Ruiz. Uh, first base. And I'm probably going to base this mostly. Well, some of it will be based because of teammates. First base. Whew. That's a tough one. Wow. I'm going to say shortstop, Cal Ripken. I'm going to start jumping around. Centerfield, Junior, uh, DH, Edgar, if we have a DH, if we're allowed to have a DH. Um, <laughs> First base, second base. Uh, Chase Utley at second base. Uh, wow. Jeff Russell as one of my bullpen guys. Remember a okay. guy by the name of Jeff Russell in Texas? Jeff Russell in, in his prime had a, had a slider that went straight down. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, he was pretty, pretty nasty for a yeah, short period yeah. of time. Uh, I'm going to say <laughs> Nolan Ryan. Uh, as a starter, Roy Halliday, Cliff Lee, um, Steve Carlton. Yep. Uh, um, and I'm, you know, this is, you know, so subject, you know, you, you could plug so many people in here. Um, wow, I'm missing a first baseman, second baseman, right fielder, Andre Dawson in right field. Oh, nice. Um, and I don't have a left fielder. Uh, hmm. You really put me on the spot here. Third base, <laughs> second base, first base, left field. Uh, I'm going to throw my trout in the left field. How about that? You know, I didn't play. I didn't play with him, but uh, you know, he's really enjoyable to watch. Okay. And, I, and, I, and I think he would uh, he would fit well in left field for me. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say Don Mattingly at first base. Okay. Uh, never played with him, but mm -hmm. really enjoyed the way he went about the game. Shortstop. And I'm going to go with Ozzie Smith at short. Oh, I already said shortstop, uh, Cal Ripken. Yeah, Ozzie's going, yeah. going to be my backup. <laughs> and how about we go with uh, Brooks Robinson at third base? Why not? And uh, <laughs> how about we go with Eddie Murray at first base? Okay. And uh, Robbie, um, uh, yeah, Robbie Alomar at, at second. Yeah, Jay Sutley at second. Uh, Who's back? Robbie, Robbie will be my, my yeah, <laughs> you're right. Robbie will be my backup. <laughs> That's a good team right there. I like that. Well, Jamie, uh, I hope you are doing well, and I hope that we do get to see you in person in not too long. And uh, just uh, love the baseball talk, love hearing what you're up to with the kids right now and, and how they're adjusting. And uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Okay. Love to do it, Shannon. Take care, stay healthy and uh, hello to all the fans out there and stay safe. I could talk baseball all day long with Jamie Moyer. We'll definitely do this again sometime. 
Last up, a former colleague, Kirby Arnold from the Everett Herald. He covered the Mariners for many, many years and stays in touch with many of the notables in their history. He has a great book that's out, Tales from the Seattle Mariners Dugout, if you're looking for a fun read. Kirby, it's great to uh, check in with you. And uh, as we were just talking, you're in Arizona right now. You, you live in both places, Seattle and Arizona. And we're all waiting and watching to see what happens with baseball, and we just don't know. A lot of things are going to have to come into place. We know that they're going to be ready when they get the, the go-ahead. But, you know, it's still just just wait at this point. Right. I played golf with some baseball people a week ago, and I know that, uh, of course, it's all dependent on the Players Association and what baseball puts together, but sounds like the guys are getting to the point where they are ready to get back on the field and they know what sacrifices they need to to deal with as far as the quarantine aspect and staying away from family members for a long time and all that. So, uh, um Sounds like, you know, to a great degree, a lot of several of the players are ready to, to get back at it if they can do it in a safe manner. So, um, like I say, we'll see. It's such a fluid deal. Yeah, I've heard the same thing. You've heard the tone shift, or not the tone, just the intense shift from the players that you've talked to from, mm-hmm. you know, four weeks mm-hmm. ago to today. And now, you know, as I'm a baseball player, I want to play baseball, and the exact same thing you've heard. If we have to suffer some you know, some things that are, are things that we do not want to do right now or kind of uh, are, are, are tough for us. It's for the short term and it's time to get back to work. But first and foremost, safe, safety and health. And, and that's that's just a given at this point. I, I, yeah, I don't know yeah. how that needs to be said. And for those who don't know, Kirby's in Arizona and they are allowed to be on the golf courses there. So you're not breaking any rules going out there and golfing. Nope. We're being very careful. I keep my sanitary wipes in my golf bag and, uh, and hand sanitizer in my golf bag, and we don't high five or shake hands or uh, don't touch the flag stick. Uh, they've done a lot of things around the, on the golf courses to to keep people uh, from the high touch points and cashless, um, you know, transactions. There, um, it's it's doable. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have to put some thought into it, but it is doable. And I and I think for just for, for the mental health of, of people, whether it's golf or any other outdoor recreation, I think that's important to get back to that if you can do it in a safe manner. So, uh, so far it's worked for me. <laughs> I'm glad you have that. I'm happy for you. Wanted to talk to you. Uh, you wrote a book. Uh, you, you, how long did you cover the, the Mariners? I covered the Mariners on a regular basis from the 99 season through the 2011 season. And then, and then uh, retired after that. But you know, I've been in Seattle since 1984. Mm-hmm. So I remember the first time in September of '84 after we moved to Seattle, walking into the Kingdom and thinking that indoor baseball was one of the more glorious things I'd ever seen. Mm. You know, after watching baseball in St. Louis all my life, uh, <laughs> couldn't believe they could play baseball indoors on plastic turf. But uh, but now what we've got is so much better. Oh, without question. Yeah, but, and, so, yeah, so I've been around it and being in the sports department at the Herald in Everett for uh, since the mid-'80s, uh, you know, I, I've been at it, you know, in and out of the press box for really since the mid-'80s. Wow. But on a, on a regular basis, uh, from started in 99. 
And you're still there from time to time. You write for the Mariners magazine as well. And we see you in spring training every year. So it's right. I drop in. in, loiter a little bit, and uh, and then drop out about the time that the real writers have all that work to do. So you come in and see all your favorite people in the media room. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I, I call them my baseball heroes. I scan the press box and and I always take a picture and put it out on Twitter and say these are my baseball heroes. So. So you were inspired to write a book, and it's Tales from the Seattle Mariners, and it's stories. And uh, Yeah, and the inspiration came from a phone call that I got from a publisher uh, out of the blue to me. I think they had approached somebody else, probably Larry LaRue, from what I am, I'm thinking, uh, who was with the Tacoma News Tribune. And uh, he didn't want to do it because Larry had his own idea of the type of book he wanted to write, and this didn't fit, his did not fit the format that they wanted uh, with this book. So I, you know, they, they kind of pitched it to me and I said, ah, sure, I'll, I'll do it. It's just, um, what it is, is it's not a history book by any means, but it's just, um, tales, anecdotes, some funny stories, some not so funny stories. And through all of that, maybe you'll get a sense of the people involved in the Mariners and the, in the big moments, uh, throughout the history of the franchise, uh, at least as it went through 2007 when we wrote the book. So we did an update on the book last year to, to uh, uh, bring a few chapters up to date, and then I wrote a, a last a last chapter to just kind of wrap up what's happened between 2007 and, and now, which is a lot, which is a lot, but really not a lot when you think about what this <laughs> franchise has gone through. Uh, one thing that, that struck me as I put that last chapter together is that there is an entire generation of hopefully baseball fans out there, young kids who have no idea what it was like in, in 2000 and 2001 uh-uh. in those great times there at the ballpark and what those teams were like. And uh, that's kind of scary when you think about it, that, that you know, these people have got to go through video highlights and things like that to, to see what it was like. So. This week they were running the 2001 ALDS, and after game five, you see the celebration there, and it hit me. That was the last celebration at T-Mobile or Safeco. There hasn't been another since. That was it, and that's that generation that you're talking about, which, uh, you know, we all know what the history is. We all know what the record is in the playoff drought, but really kind of hit home that that was the last time that that building has seen that kind of a celebration, and it capped off an absolutely unbelievable year. Yeah, that's what, that's the, I, I wish, you know, I mean, you're thinking if, if someone was born in 2001, they're 19 years old, going to college now, and have no sense of what uh, that ballpark was like night after night after night that year, and the, the, the excitement in the stands, and it was full every night. Uh, that was, that was, something that uh, I don't think I've experienced in all my time in sports over an entire season like that. Young kids now don't get that, you know, every so often there'll be a, a, a big moment and everything and a sellout crowd and a lot of excitement, but the day to day to day sense of what that team was accomplishing is something that was really special. And it's still out there. And I think we sometimes forget that. I think it helps you growing up a Cardinals fan, me growing up a Cubs fan. And we have seen success in that time. And, you know, with everything that's changed in the game, when a team gets on a roll and for the Mariners that year, it was 
an entire season long role, but it might, you know, pick up in June, it might pick up in July and, and all you, you see something very similar. That's still such a part of this game. Yeah. And I actually had to go back and kind of review that chapter of the book to, to remember the things that were going on. And, uh, they were on such a roll at the beginning of that season. I mean, they just started out so hot. And I remember when Texas came to town in mid-April, I'd have to go back and look at when it was, but the Mariners had started the season so hot. That was when Alex Rodriguez, his first day back at Safeco Field after he had come back. And I'm not talking about all the booing and things that he heard from the stand, from the crowd, but that afternoon I remember um, – we all gathered in the Rangers dugout and Alex came back and sat down and talked to us. And one of the first things he said was he said, I'm conceding the division right now to the Mariners. And I'm thinking, yeah, I know the Mariners have what, an eight or nine game lead or whatever it was at that point. But, you know, things change over 162 games. Yeah. And I remember going back and looking at the 1998 Yankees who won 114 games that year. You know, and the Yankees went through a – six or seven or eight game losing streak at one point during that season. Every team goes through something like that, but the Mariners never lost more than two games in a row until September that season. Just phenomenal. The way the team was put together, the uh, personalities on the team, everything just kind of clicked and the way they, the way they played, it was unselfish. Uh, The way Lou Pinella managed that team, managed his roster, kept the regulars fresh. Uh, using Mark McLemore, Stan Javier, those guys were just as important as Brett Boone was and Edgar. I mean, that's that's what it took to do what they did. Unfortunately, it's just so unfortunate that it didn't turn out that way. And like you referenced, that that Cleveland series was such a struggle for them. They just barely got through that thing. And then they had to face the Yankees. You know, it's funny. I'm, you mentioned Lou Pinella there, and I've been writing up little previews for all the games that we've been running on the radio, and it's been a great exercise in history and, and trying to get the feel of what was going on into those games. One of them, and I think it was in 2000, and it was one of your pieces, you talked to McLaren, and he said that Lou is finally managing, or he's managing the way that he has wanted to, and that was because mm-hmm. of Safeco Field. In the kingdom, it was just sit back and wait for somebody to hit a right. dinger. But right. he thought that that building made Lou better than Safeco did. Do you remember that? Yeah, I kind of remember it because I remember in the offseason, after, after the 99 season, talking to Lou about what he wanted to do with the roster. You know, that was the offseason when Junior departed, so they were going to have to do something with that. But, but uh, you know, knowing that they were in a in, you know, spin the last half of the 99 season at Safeco Field, a completely different ballpark than the Kingdom. Uh, you know, the ball didn't – it was pretty clear the ball didn't fly in the air as, as well as it did in the Kingdom. The, the outfield gaps were huge. Uh, it took a different type of team. And he, he said, we've got to become more athletic, mm-hmm. plain and simple. So, they, they, you know, they added some pieces. They still had Alex for the 2000 season. They lost Junior, but then they brought in Mike Cameron. And you talk about athleticism right there. You know, in the first week of the season, he makes that catch up against the center field wall to Rob Jeter of a home run, and all of a sudden the city loves him again and loves him. What was so interesting to me is, is, is like you said, just the way he the, the roster was put together. I think he and Pat Gillick worked really well together. The pieces all just really complemented each other and down to the 25th player on that roster. 
When was Luis Ugetto on the on the roster? That's got what I got to remember. Might have been the twenty fourth player during that year, but that's another story. So <laughs> the Rule Five guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My sidetrack uh, on uh, Luis Ugetto is I remember when they picked him up in the Rule Five draft. One of us asked Lou, "Where do you see using?" Ugetto this year and he says I see him right next to me on the bench <laughs> and that was it <laughs> that was one of the things I loved about Lou I mean there were some things you know you never want to hear son that is something that right. you're, you're in trouble and unfortunately I got that one once which meant I think I was in extra trouble the other thing is he either completely butchered your name or had no idea what your name or his players names were Gibbonez right. uh, right. was a big one Ichiro yep. I mean just everyone right. Funny story, um, when Chuck Armstrong retired, they had a, a big party for him, and I was invited to it. It was just, it was amazing. I, uh, at the dinner, I sat between Woody Woodward and Dave Balderson, and you can imagine the stories. I mean, I'm just sitting there. Mm-hmm. I'm like, how did I get at the grown-ups table here? I mean, it right. was just listening to everything and how the, the team came together in those, those early years. But Lou saw me, and it got to a point where, because I, I've covered the Mariners when Lou was there very much on the fringe. I was like the third person I was there. He saw me. I asked questions. He was great to me. Um, but he didn't know me. I wasn't one of the beat writers that was in with him all the right. time. And it got to the point where we would sometimes see him in Tampa, or we'd see him in Chicago, or we'd see him in Arizona. And he'd always look at me like he knew me, but he had no idea what my name was. And it got to the point where it was so uncomfortable. I'm like, I love Lou, but I don't want to go through this again. So at this event, I'm like, I'm hiding from Lou. I don't want him to try and have to figure out (laughs) who I am. And sure enough, I come around the corner at one point, and I nearly run straight into him. And he starts talking to me in Spanish. And he lights up. I mean, he just lights up, and he starts talking to me in Spanish. And I just shake my head, and I'm like, he thinks I'm Candace. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And for those who don't know, Candace was a reporter who covered the team at the same time, um, but spoke fluent Spanish and did it in Spanish. And it was just, okay, he doesn't have my name. He thinks I'm the Spanish reporter. And I just nodded my head at him and said, see, and just took off. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) We've all been been mistaken for somebody else. Uh, Richie Saxon mistook mistook me for Steve Kelly (laughs) after, after Kelly. It was two days after Kelly had written a scathing column about Richie because it was it was Richie's last season and Richie was having a horrible year. And I'm standing is actually I was standing um, in the locker room uh, interviewing a player who had played on the '95 Angels team because it was it was an interview for this book. And all of a sudden, I felt something hit me really hard on the back of my shoulder. I turn around and I look and there's Richie standing there shaking his first baseman's glove at me saying, that was a great piece you wrote the other day. Really good. You're going to win a Pulitzer for that, you scumbag or something like that. Oh my gosh. Turns around and walks out to go, to go out to BP. And I, I, I looked at whoever I was talking with and uh, I said, I have no idea what he's talking about because I haven't, he hasn't done anything to even get his name in the paper for the last three days. So, um, in, in at least in my work, but so I later found out I was really angry about it, and I was going to Richie was out on the field fielding ground balls before his group took its turn in the cage, and I knew where Richie kept his glove and his bat at the end of the dugout, so I was just standing there waiting for him to come off the field because I was going to let him have it there, and I told Tim heavily, the PR director, that I was going to talk to Richie 
and I wasn't happy about it because he made a scene in the clubhouse there. And, uh, and uh, as Richie is fielding his last ground ball, throws it in the bucket, starts to work, walk toward the dugout, Tim intercepts Richie on the field about where the coach's box is. They have a little quiet talk. Richie shakes his head. Richie comes on, comes down the dugout steps, puts his arm around me and says, you know, I was just messing with you, don't you? We're friends, right? So, back back to Lou, though. I, one story that Mike Blowers gave me, and he's probably told you about this, too, that, that I used in the book, was just what a genius Lou was as far as knowing his own personnel. He knew the other team's personnel, too, but he knew, he knew his own personnel so well. And Mike had told me that he was on the bench. It was, you know, getting late in, the, in a tight game. The other team had brought in a tough right-handed sinker ball pitcher. And Mike figured, well, I'm not going to get an at-bat tonight. And all of a sudden, Lou says to Mike, grab a bat. And Mike's going, what do you mean? I don't think I can hit this guy. And Lou says, no, you hit that down in pitch. You can handle this guy. Just look for that pitch. That's what he throws you. He's going to come come to you with it. And sure enough, he did. And uh, I think Mike doubled or something like that, but but that's just an example of how you know in the in the, in the age of pre analytics and all that stuff, Lou knew so much about everything in the game, and Lou paid attention to numbers too. I, I was thinking this morning that he was actually a pretty analytical type guy because he loves the stock market, he loves to go fishing, you know, fishing out in Tampa Bay, and and you got to analyze a lot of things there as far as where to go, what to use, what time of day what the temperatures are, things like that, to factor into fishing. So, and golf is a little bit of an analytical game too, and he loves to play golf. So he had that kind of a mind. It was just uh, not to the extent that we see today in the game. But I, I think Lou was such a genius when it came to those kinds of things. Yeah, and managing people too. You know, that's right. not a given by any means. But um, one of the impressive things that I heard from a number of people is that once the team got up and going, he got out of the way. He did not put pressure on them, you know, right. in any situation. For all the bluster that we heard about, his job was to take that pressure off. He understood that and let them play, which um, heard so many great stories about that. With your book, what's really neat, I mean, it is from start to when you updated it, and obviously there's so much that happened in that time. How did you come up with the stories from before your time? How did you get those? Um, well, there, there are a certain number of team personnel that were with the club then. Uh, Dave Niehaus helped me tremendously uh-huh. on that. I, I think the world of Dave. In fact, uh, as you go through the book, there's only three chapters that are voted, devoted to a specific individual, and those are the three at the time I wrote it, probably still the three most influential individuals in the history of the franchise. And that is uh, Dave Niehaus, Lou Pinella, and King Griffey Jr. And uh, so, but Dave helped me with a lot of, a lot of stories. And then, you know, there, there's a lot of s- stories uh, that we'd all heard about. And I just wanted to, you know, I called a lot of the people and to find out what really went on. You know, Randy Adamack, who was a young PR person, he's the, um, with the vice president in charge of communications, I think with the club now, but, uh, you know, he told me the stories of the, the mascot contest that they had at the kingdom and <laughs> the crazy outfits that people wore to that thing. And there was one mascot, uh, and it was just, anybody could come and enter the contest and it was kind of a, the crowd would determine who won 
the contest. And apparently some, you know, they would, they would run in from the left field gate uh, down to the third baseline in front of the Mariner dugout, and then the crowd would applaud or whatever they did. And um, one guy was dressed as a baby. He had nothing but a diaper on and I think a pacifier. He crawled on his hands and knees all the way from left field to the third baseline. And what um, a lot of people don't realize is that the Kingdom turf back then was really abrasive. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he finally got to the third baseline and stood up, his hands and knees were just a bloody mess. Yeah. So that was the baby. <laughs> but so stories like that, just in, you know, you talk to Julio Cruz. Uh, I just call a lot of people. I talked to a couple of the guys with, you know, with the old uh, Seattle Pilots, what it was like that year. Um, Lee Elia helped me out a lot, what it was like in 95. That, in fact, that was the opening of my book was that, uh, you know, the excitement in 95 um, and how it built through the month of September. And, and Lee was talking how, you know, one night, he, you know, 30 minutes before the game time, he went out to have his cigarette in the little tunnel behind the Mariner dugout, and he could kind of look through a crack there and see see the field, and he thought, man, are we giving something away? Because this place is full now. And the Mariners had already begun that run there in September, and uh, it turned out, no, it was just these are people here. They've caught baseball fever in Seattle, and that was kind of the first sense of it in the kingdom. So That must have been a lot of fun to get all those stories. And, and... Yeah, it was. Yeah, and it's, it's Jay Buner helped me out. Jay helped me out tremendously, and I think he was a little irritated at me that some of his stories did not make it in the book. <laughs> but I had to explain to Jay that I would like children to read this book, and uh, you know, at least junior high age kids, and so let's keep it uh, as clean as possible. But uh, no, Jay's Jay's awesome, and he gave me a lot of good stuff. I would imagine there was a lot of editing, not in that sense, but in that there is just so much. It's hard to pick one story or just one or two stories for. You know, right. You know, characters. I think the original uh, book when it came out was like 60,000 words. And I think I, by the time I finished, uh, I had 90,000. So I had to cut out a lot of things, a lot of stories. What's your favorite story? What is the story that puts the biggest smile on your face? Oh, man. Um, gosh, there's so, there's so many. Um, you know, I, it might not be a funny thing because there, there are a lot of goofy things that the club did. I mean, that, you know, people told me, you know, what a character, what a strange guy Ray Quinones was, really talented shortstop who really didn't want to play. Uh, but, um, you know, maybe the stuff that I lived through and then got a, a different perspective, uh, especially like we're talking the 2001 season and talking to Brian Price about it and just talking about the makeup of the team and how, now, you know, they would win eight games in a row, but if they lost that nine, ninth game, there were 25 guys in that clubhouse who were genuinely ticked off that they lost that, that ninth game. And that's the type of mentality that carried them through the season. Mm. And uh, so things like that. Um, there's, a, there's a great story about Lou and Lee Elia walking back to the hotel after a game in, in Cleveland. And... Um, Again, it's not a funny story. It's a touching story to me, but it told you a lot about who these people are. Uh, They're walking back to the hotel summer night in Cleveland, and there's a woman outside the team hotel who was just kind of begging. She said, you know, would would you have anything? I'm I'm 
you know, I have no money. I have no job. I have two kids. I just, you know, if you have anything I could, I just need to buy diapers from my baby. That's all I want. And so Lou said, uh, here, let's go. And I think I'm trying to remember the story, but I, I think that, uh, Lou, she, he took, he might've taken her to a grocery store or he went to the grocery store, bought a bunch of groceries and everything, brought it, gave it to her, put her in a cab, gave the cabbie plenty of money and said, take her, take her home and everything. And so, and not only that, but then as they sent the cab away and the cab drove away, Lee Elia looks at Lou and Lou's got tears coming down his cheeks. And Lee looks at Lou and says, what's up, Lou? And Lou says, I don't know if I did enough. Hmm. So those kinds of things. It's the, uh, the story of, of September the, or the October playoff series in New York in 2001. And uh, what, and the team going down to ground zero. And they go, they went to the, to the fire station and met families of the lost firefighters that had just been lost a few weeks earlier. And they heard their stories. And, you know, this was a real family oriented team. And those guys were, were shook up. And I had a few people tell me that kind of the, the intensity of the team changed after that day. Um, I don't know, because they went out that night. And I think they beat the Yankees. But still, um, you know, it's just it, it tells you what, what type of human beings those guys were on that team and, uh, and, and who they were beyond the talent that they brought to the baseball field. So they had real feelings. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Special group on and off the field. No question about it. We saw you in spring training this year. Were you able to do some interviews? Uh, not too many. No. Okay. <laughs> I've got a good story about Rick Riz that's waiting, you know, to go in the magazine. And uh, it's actually something that I sat down with him in, um, January when I was back in Seattle for the holidays, uh, Rick's into classic cars. So we, we got in his, his old 57 Chevy and we drove over to triple X root beer in Issaquah on, on a rainy cold day and took a lot of photos and had a big sloppy hamburger and, uh, oh. and talked about his love of cars and where, how it goes back to when he was a kid with his dad and everything. And, and what's it, to me, what's interesting about that is the parallels of the love of baseball how they are really born when you're a kid, a lot of ways um, that he has that love of, of old classic cars. So someday that story will run as long as we hopefully have a baseball season and then can sell a magazine. There we go. I'm looking forward to one that. Thing I've one. got in the works right now. Yeah. Baseball wise. Yeah. <laughs> baseball and cars. Uh, right. Just for those that don't know you, you, cars are another passion and uh, you've had a post-retirement, very interesting career in that uh what did you have planned for this year and what do you see as the forecast for that this year i don't know uh you know early in my career when i lived in the midwest i covered a lot of auto racing including the indianapolis 500 so after after i retired uh from my newspaper job in seattle after 2011 i you know i kind of stepped up my interest in auto racing and went to a few more races always went back to indianapolis to the 500 and then about five or six years ago, I got hooked up with some people who I'd known earlier. And one thing led to another, and I started writing for the IndyCar Series website. So, uh, and just doing features and things that I wanted to do to kind of tell the story behind the 
story behind the racers and the race, you know, and the races. And, um, so I wrote for IndyCar.com for a few years and, uh, now everything's kind of ground to a halt, but I had, uh, I had a few things in the works for this May that we were going to, going to do, including a ride with Mario Andretti around, around the speedway. So at 180 miles an hour. So hopefully, you know, the race is not canceled. It's scheduled for mid August and hopefully we'll get back to that, but who knows what's, you know, what kind of restrictions are going to be in place as far as the media and everything else. Uh, uh, then I just think everything is so up in the air now, but, but yeah, that's what I, you know, baseball and in cars and golf, fishing, I can do all those, you know, that's what kind of occupies my time right now. Well, I hope you get that ride with Andretti sometime. I'm sure it'll be postponed, but I hope that that remains somewhere on the calendar in the distant future. And I hope we see you at a ballpark. And I'll be at a ballpark. I can't stay away. (laughs) Kirby, thank you so much. Again, the book is Tales from the Seattle Mariners. And uh, it's, it's it's a great read. It's a fun read. It's historical, but also just it's hysterical in some parts, too. So I think a lot of folks would enjoy it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. And that's it for this week's Conversations. I want to remind you that we have baseball on the radio every night at 7 p.m. on 710 ESPN Seattle as we continue to roll the Mariners Classics. Coming up this week, we have, I guess you could say, we have got a little bit of a theme week here. We've got a bunch of firsts. First game in franchise history, first game at Safeco Field, first win at Safeco Field. How about the one-game playoff in 1995? Gary Hill has had a lot of fun putting all of these together. All right, until next week, I'll let the Seattle band days take us out. Stay safe, stay well, and take care.